Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're living in an age where information is fast and furious. Some of that information is about as useless, as much a waste of time and money as the movie franchise by that same name. I'll offer my insincere apologies to fans eagerly waiting for Fast and Furious 10. But really, with internet and media and polarized politics, we as Christians have to work extra hard to sift through the information we're given to determine if it's true or if it warrants our time and attention at all. Many times we might have to admit that we don't have enough evidence to be conclusive or that we need to do a lot more work to investigate and get to the other side of the information maze. But not everything in life is that uncertain or untrustworthy. Some things have hard evidence that demand our attention. So the claims of Christ recorded in Scripture pass the test of historical reliability, despite postmodern cries to the contrary. The evidence is strong and demands that we make a decision about Jesus. And so we'll see in this part two of a section in Acts 4 where Peter and John are bold witnesses under examination by the Sanhedrin, we see how those who oppose Christ are faced with hard evidence that Jesus is still at work through his followers. Their Jesus problem isn't going away, it's growing. But for Christ's followers, opposition to Jesus by the religious leadership in Israel now becomes opposition to the apostles and Christ's growing church. So Peter and John are arrested and jailed overnight for healing a man and preaching Christ publicly in the temple. The next day, they're interrogated by the Sanhedrin, and Peter, filled with the Spirit, gives an astonishingly bold and clear proclamation of the gospel. Then this is what follows, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. We have two major themes working in tandem here. There's a continuation of the theme of the apostles being bold under pressure, and there's a second theme of how obvious the evidence about the continued work of Jesus becomes this, all this obvious evidence becomes a significant challenge for those who oppose him. But even these opponents must admit 
what we discussed last week, which is the boldness of Peter and John to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ when they're being threatened by the highest court in the land. The very same Sanhedrin that killed Jesus, or had Jesus killed. The word translated as boldness in verse 13 to describe Peter and John is exactly what you would expect it to mean. It is a confidence and a courage, the trait of being willing to undertake activities that involve risk or danger, especially in being honest and straightforward in attitude and in speech. So there's a connection to this boldness that is not just about undertaking activities that involve risk, but especially being clear and bold in speech and in attitude. We as followers of Jesus Christ immediately see something here in these two apostles that we should desire to emulate, this boldness. What do we learn from the verse and the context about what it takes to be courageous for Christ? Well, first, ask yourselves what you see in verse 13 about what it, what it does not take to be a bold witness for Christ. The text tells us that the religious elite were astonished by their boldness because they perceived that they were uneducated and common. To think that they were uneducated and common isn't to say that they were stupid and illiterate. They weren't that. It's the simple recognition that these men don't have any formal training in the advanced rabbinic schools. There's nothing inherently wrong or right about being ordinary. Some of you might be like me and you're thankful. And there's not any, any more than there's anything inherently wrong or right about having a superior intellect. We trust God with the way that he has made us in this life. And there certainly isn't anything wrong with receiving extended training and education. Soon we'll see the life and the experience of the Apostle Paul as an example of that. He had significant advanced training in the rabbinic schools. And once he is made new and changed by an encounter with the risen Christ, he becomes quite literally, the founder of the sound doctrine that we have as the New Testament church. There's nothing wrong with being educated or uncommon, but such isn't a requirement for being used of God to boldly proclaim Christ. So what does it take to be a bold witness for Christ? Quote, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Their knowledge had come in the school of 24-7 ministry with Jesus for three years. His teaching, his trials, his prayer, his compassion, and then they witnessed his death. But not only his death, they witnessed his resurrection, they witnessed various appearances of the risen Christ, and they witnessed his ascension. The fact that they personally knew Jesus and had been changed by him was evident. And it became evident in their, their scriptural knowledge, their bold proclamation, and their spiritual clarity. They're commissioned by Jesus in his own authority and given the indwelling Holy Spirit. So it requires, first of all, being in Christ and learning from Christ. Being a bold witness require, for Christ requires being in Christ and learning from him. 
Like their education, the apostles' authority to speak so boldly was literally derived from Jesus. It's authority by association and authority by commission. When we're saved and restored to God through faith in Jesus, we're adopted as sons of God and we become his ambassadors to the world. Knowing Christ transforms our identity and our mission, our purpose. But it would be silly for us to assume that they're bold in spite of their ignorance. Again, I mentioned last week that we have another word for being ignorantly courageous, foolish. No, Peter and John aren't ignorant. They learned from the master. Ignorance isn't a virtue. Humble dependence in hard work and study and in service are virtues. So how will we grow in confidence of our standing in Christ and courageous that he has given us authority and bold and clear in our declaration of the gospel? We must draw near to God by the ordinary means of his grace to us, listening to him through personal study of the word and through sound teaching, through communing with him in prayer, fellowshipping with his people in service to one another and in advancement of the gospel, and then finally, experiencing God prove himself as we obey the command of Christ. By doing these things, we abide in Jesus and we learn from him. And here are some other implications from the surrounding text as well. Most of these are connected in some way to what we just pointed out from verse 13. Being a bold witness for Christ requires being controlled by the Spirit in fellowship with and dependence on God. Remember that chapter 4, verse 8 said that Peter was, how did he boldly proclaim? He was filled with the Spirit. Spiritual courage isn't conjured up by hype. It comes from being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what do I always say here to this church family? What do I say is the primary evidence of our dependence on God? Anybody remember? What's the primary evidence of your dependence on God? Prayer. If you don't pray, it's because you don't think you need prayer. We see this take place in the very next section of this chapter when the disciples gather after Peter and John are released. Acts 4.29, they pray, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So, too, being a bold witness requires a willingness to trust God in spite of the risk. Since this Sanhedrin is the very same that tried and had Jesus crucified, The most bold among the new covenant community will also be perceived as the greatest threat to their power and authority and therefore become a target. Peter and John are in their crosshairs. But who is sovereign over all his enemies? Jesus, who is Lord. As we said last week, being opposed for the sake of Christ is in fact confirming. It is confirmation that we are following in our Lord's footsteps. So too, being a bold witness for Christ requires an obedience to pursue opportunities and obedience to seize opportunities that are already there. I, as I think about this context overall of now 
Luke giving another summary we just saw last week. Luke gave another summary. Remember that after Peter's proclamation, the first day at Pentecost, there were now over 3,000 saved. And then we heard another summary that there are now more than 5,000 men who are saved. So the number may be as many as 10,000. And I find it highly unlikely that that happened all simply from just two sermons. No, I find it more likely that not only did Peter preach, but that those who are being saved are continually proclaiming Christ in public and in private. As they're meeting together in people's houses and inviting people in, they're proclaiming Christ over and over again, pursuing opportunities and seizing opportunities. They preached Christ. And therefore, it requires a crystal clear proclamation of the gospel. We've seen the clarity of Peter's first two sermons, one in chapter 2 and one in chapter 3. And as we looked at those, we took into account that Peter's preaching to this Jewish audience during this transitional period, and and that Luke undoubtedly summarized what was a longer, uh, both times, longer teaching. But then here again, before the highest court in Israel, Peter boldly proclaimed, boldly declared the crux of the gospel, Acts 4, 10 through 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we'll continue to talk about the need for this kind of clear gospel proclamation even as we go to verse 14. So let's move forward as we sort of transition to the second theme that I talked about. Those who oppose the apostles have an evidence problem. Look back with me at the text. First of all, verse 14 shows they cannot deny that the healing man is literally, quote, standing beside them. And then also, Acts chapter 3, verse 10 reminds us that the people clearly had recognized him as the lame man who was always begging at the beautiful gate. And verse 22 here that we just read confirms that God miraculously healed this man who had been an invalid for more than 40 years. So what do they do next? Verse 15, they remove Peter and John and everybody else in order to discuss in private what they should do. By the way, I don't know if you tend to think like this, but I do. This means that at some point there was a source passed down to Luke or maybe even whom Luke personally interviewed who was an insider among the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus or another sympathizer or convert to Christianity who was there even when Peter and John were not. Anyway, in verse 16, the opposing leaders admit with perfect clarity There in verse 16, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. So here's my summary of their evidence problem. Miraculous transformation speaks for itself and silences rational opposition. 
The miraculous transformation, this man's healing, in this case, speaks for itself. But that alone is not sufficient to bring clarity to the gospel. The Bible tells us that so too do creation and human conscience declare the existence and the glory of God, Romans chapter 1. And they're sufficient to convict us of refusing to seek God, but creation and conscience alone do not proclaim the gospel. If they did, people could be saved without ever hearing of Jesus. But that's contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture. Paul continues later in Romans chapter 10, and he says, Because this is how you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He'll continue in verses 14 and 15 to describe how important it is then that people hear the gospel. How then will people who haven't heard call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God has providentially determined that the gospel of Jesus Christ must be declared and then received. Even our transformed lives are evidence of the power of Jesus, but that alone does not clarify the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the perfection and sacrifice of Christ, his resurrection and exaltation, or the need for repentance and faith in order to be saved. So while miraculous transformation doesn't proclaim the whole gospel, it does silence rational opposition. They had nothing to say in opposition. In other words, applying this to more than just the miraculous healing, a Christian's godly living makes it such that persecution must have ulterior motive and false accusation. Here are a couple of good scriptural reminders for us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter will say, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They will speak against you as evildoers, but your conduct is actually honorable. In chapter 3 of that same letter, Peter says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, which is what they will have to do, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Just so the religious leaders in Acts 4 find themselves in a pickle. How can our Jesus problem be growing only bigger with him gone? As verse 16 shows, in spite of their private deliberation, the evidence problem really leaves the council with no good legal recourse and no good socially acceptable option because they fear man. Because they and everybody can see the evidence. So what do they have left to do? The solution that they propose, the only solution they have really is that they decide to use their position of authority 
to pressure and threaten the apostles, hoping to scare them into submission. But in order, this is verse 17, in order that they may spread this no further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak to anyone or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And what does it say at the beginning of verse 21? And when they had further threatened them, they let them go and didn't have any further way to punish them because of the people. Christ's opponents are forced to reject the plain evidence and resort to threatening his followers. Consider what we've heard them admit. We can't deny this notable sign, verse 16, and we can see for ourselves that these guys have been with Jesus, verse 13. So Daryl Bach accurately explains, rejection of Jesus is not rational, but is reflective of a refusal to see what God has done. Rejection of Jesus is not, in fact, rational, but rather is reflective of a refusal to see what God has done. The only solution they can conjure up is to threaten the apostles in hope that they will cower in fear. Do we need courage? But how does that work out for them? Hope that they'll cower in fear. And what should we take away from Peter and John's response? How might we answer when commanded by authorities to stop proclaiming Christ? So in verses 19 and 20, we have an example of how we might respond when told to stop proclaiming Jesus. As Jesus promised would happen in the power and the guidance of the Spirit, Peter and John's boldness hasn't waned. We learn from their example here, first of all, that we must obey God. Peter and John demonstrate that we have a responsibility to disobey authorities in any specific scenario in which those authorities would prevent us from obeying God. Peter says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you Rather than God, you must judge. Notice the contrast between Peter and John fearing God more than man versus the religious leaders deciding not to punish these healers because it would displease the populace. Peter and John fear God more than man. So first, we must obey God. We also see here that what the authorities will do with that obedience to God is between them and God. Because these are the Jewish religious leaders who would claim to be motivated, who would claim to be motivated most of all by what God wants, the apostles can respect them and indict them at the same time. You must judge. It's quite literally your job in Israel to be making judgments that are consistent with God's own character and command. You must judge if we should listen to you rather than to God. And when Peter says we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard, what he describes is that it simply isn't even an option to stop proclaiming the gospel. Because to not speak of Christ is disobedient to our Lord, it's denial of the evidence, 
and it's contradictory to our very existence. Jesus commanded us to make disciples and declared that we would be his witnesses in the power of the Spirit. And we have become fully convinced by God that Jesus died and rose again, and he is reigning and he is returning. To us, the evidence is as plain as the nose on your face, or in this case, as plain as the guy being healed by the power of God is standing right here next to us. So we publicly own up to following Jesus because Jesus has made us his own. We identify with Christ because his life in us has literally become our identity. We cannot but speak. We must declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. To summarize and apply again what we've seen today, there is, of course, this boldness of Peter and John that we emphasized last week and this week. But since our conclusion last week emphasized that and extended the application in that area, I'd like to conclude with application connected to this other group in the text, the opponents, and the way that it relates to how we began this morning. The religious leaders are faced with a nagging Jesus problem that won't go away. Because of who Jesus is, first of all, And then because of what he has done through Jesus, what God has done, because of who God is, first of all, and then because of what he has done through Jesus, the entire human race has a Jesus problem that won't just go away by trying to ignore him. And the first reason that the Jesus problem won't go away is because the evidence is so prolific. If you haven't yet had the privilege of reading one of the the books. I'm going to recommend a few to you right now, but there are several really good books written by Christians who themselves, at the time, they were, they were agnostic or they were atheists, and they were deliberately looking for evidence to prove that if, if you could just show that the resurrection is unreliable, everything else would crumble about Christianity. And so these people did research and found that the Bible that the New Testament, especially when you consider Luke and Acts, that these are as historically reliable or more than any document we consider to be historically reliable. So there are books written by Josh and Sean McDowell. The updated versions have Sean in there too. One of them is Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Another one is More Than a Carpenter. I encourage you to read one of those, or The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. I think they made a movie out of that one too, didn't they? You can watch The Case for Christ um, or read those books. So what are you doing with the plentiful evidence concerning Jesus? Are you trying to ignore it or explain it away? Or are you ready to submit to Jesus as Lord? the God-man who gave himself up for you and rose again so that you can have forgiveness and restoration to God. What you do with Jesus will change everything. The second reason that the Jesus problem won't go away is because the people that he's saving can't shut up. That's you. They just can't shut you up. 
He has transformed us. He's working in us. He is working through us. We are his people, and his people proclaim his salvation. And the final reason the Jesus problem won't go away is because it's, it's a God problem, isn't it? All of creation is beholden to God for our existence. All of humanity is responsible to God for our refusal to worship him more than we worship ourselves. That sin debt before a holy God is a problem too great for us to resolve by any religious effort of our own. God has, therefore, intervened in human history through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And one day, the question we will all face in the presence of God is, what did you do with the clear evidence, God says, of my existence, both in creation and in your conscience? And what did you do with the salvation I offered through Jesus Christ? There is only one way to be right with God, and it is to be made right through Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We understand, even as we're reminded this morning from the text, that we can't possibly save ourselves. We had to be rescued by you through Jesus Christ. And we thank you that if we will confess our sin and our inability to be right with you on our own, if we will humble ourselves and submit to Jesus as Lord, that you will begin the process of saving us and you will give us your Holy Spirit, and you will see us through to the end. Lord, we thank you that you've given us also the privilege of being your witnesses. We know that there's an element to this in which we just need to obey, and we also know that we need to abide, to draw near to you, so that we will in fact be yielding to your Spirit who will give us boldness and courage and clarity in proclamation of the gospel. Glorify yourself in our hearts and in our obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.